Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. I just want to say a quick thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Youth and Earth. Youth and Earth are a supplement company designed to help us all feel younger for longer. Their product addresses the causes of aging at a cellular level and help us to maintain and sustain a fit and active lifestyle. Their NMN delayed release capsules are one of the staples of my anti-aging, much needed arsenal. I really love them. They're entirely natural, they boost my energy levels and work to promote cell vitality throughout my body. I feel amazing with them. So if you're like me and looking to slow down the aging process, then I encourage you all to take advantage of a very generous 25% off when using the code JULIA25 on your first order. Head to www.youthandearth.com now and give your body every opportunity to feel more youthful. I'll just say it again, www.youthandearth.com. Hello, Vet. I am delighted to welcome you on to the Therapy Works podcast. You are 41, you're a journalist, a writer, and a podcaster. And my first question I ask all our guests is, what is a challenge you are facing or have faced? I think the big challenge for me at the moment is improving my eating. So I've got bipolar disorder, but I've also got binge eating disorder. But they're both interrelated now. Yeah. Bipolar disorder and binge eating disorder. I mean, they, they affect each other. Yes, that's the thing. And that's what I'm trying to manage now, because I think I've got my head around bipolar disorder fairly well and in terms of managing that. But I haven't really got so good yet um, with the eating sides of things. So you're absolutely right. They are connected. So, for example, for a few months earlier in the year, I got very depressed and I got basically into this cycle of eating very badly, binge eating. And logically, it seems like it makes sense because basically I was eating things to try and make myself feel better. But then on the other hand, I don't want to keep gaining weight and being unhealthy. So it's tricky because, like I said, I have got very depressed. And when I'm in that sort of headspace, I certainly don't feel like eating lettuce. No. <laughs> I can hear how disturbing it is and how, in a way, out of control. Can we go back a step and can you first of all describe what you understand by bipolar and how it manifests for you? Yes, absolutely. I think I started experiencing depression actually in childhood. 
I had patches of sort of feeling low, but I wasn't diagnosed in childhood. Um, I first went to the doctor about it when I was about 14, feeling low. Was there something that happened in your childhood? Well, elements of my childhood were great. I've got a lovely family, but I think elements of it were stressful because members of my family did get quite ill at some points. And I think that was quite difficult. But I've never really known if the bipolar stuff is nature or nurture. I sometimes feel that I was just born this way and it's been a process of learning to manage it. Would it help if you knew? I mean, often people want to know the root of how I've come to be how I am. And one single event, my dad died when I was eight. In some sense, that's awful, but also it gives you a a specific thing that you can use as my life changed at that point. And I think it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, I think what we know from the science is that we're born with a predisposition, a genetic propensity, and then our environment, it's an iterative process. It can either make that propensity greater or lesser, depending on what happens to us. So it's a kind of combination. Yeah, I definitely would like to understand more, I think, about the root of it. But I think for me, there's, if I'm honest, there's a kind of guilt around that because I suppose when you're talking about stuff that happens in childhood, I don't want to feel like I'm blaming anyone. Mm. Basically, a family member got ill and through no fault of their own. And I'm happy to talk about all this, but um, I wouldn't want them to feel like that was their fault because it wasn't. But at the same time, I think it probably actually was quite disruptive at times. As a beginning point, you were kind of born in a particular way and then a a close family member became ill. And, you know, that is nobody's fault. But that may have set you on a pathway. And you were saying that when you were 14, you knew that you were depressed or you felt depressed. Mm. But it was undiagnosed. I guess then mental health wasn't something that was talked about. So No, it wasn't talked about. I mean, what do you remember at 14? It wasn't talked about nearly as much and it was a really strong feeling. I can still remember very vividly just going to the bathroom, locking myself in and just crying and crying and not knowing why. And I think that was the scary thing initially because to not know why you're sad. Depression's a strange thing, isn't it? I suppose with crying, I just didn't know what was the matter. I feel so sad for that little 14-year-old girl in, in the bathroom crying and feeling so confused and so profoundly sad and she didn't know what the hell was going on and didn't know how to even say it properly. Well and also the isolation that's a really key thing about depression it's not just the feeling sort of cut off from people it's but it's not just the sadness or the emptiness or the the lack of emotion it's the way that it can make you cut off from people so there's something about that feeling that made me feel like I had to go to the bathroom and lock myself in and not show myself crying. And if I think about that now, that's actually worse, isn't it, in some ways, than than the crying? Yes. Gosh, it feels like a sort of little light bulb moment in that moment that you set up a pattern when you had uncomfortable feelings, in this case, sadness. You felt you had to hide away and do it on your own, which actually, as you're recognising, is the worst thing about it. It's awful having these sad feelings or feeling very low or all of these different feelings. But actually what is even worse is the way you cut off from the people who can most support you, love you, connect you to be able to manage them. Yeah. 
and doing it on your own is so chilly and you feel like there's something wrong with you and then you distance yourself from everyone else then it's self-perpetuating I guess yeah it's pretty horrible the things that depression can tell you because it can definitely sort of make you feel like you know you're worthless or that that your friends don't actually like you or your family don't actually care about you which is all lies but at the time that is how you feel or that's how I've felt and I think that's why it's dangerous so the depression would give you these awful, critical, self-attacking messages. I mean, these are really cruel. Nobody likes you. Your family don't like you. Nobody cares about you. Mm. I mean, that's so painful. Yes, it is. I think over the past few years, now I've got a bit older, I have got a bit better at recognising that that's depression. That's not actually the truth. Mm. But as I say, I haven't got that much better because I still go to these support systems of when I feel low like that, going to something which I imagine is also like something from childhood, which is eating to feel better. I haven't really talked about the other side of bipolar disorder yet. So I had the depression at 14. Mm. When I was 17, I had a manic episode, my first manic episode. Mm. And what that entailed was basically completely losing touch with the reality having lots of delusions believing that I had magical powers and from my parents point of view it was quite strange for them because they'd gone out to a concert and then when they came back I was gone I was very unwell sounds terrifying well people always say this and I expect it was terrifying for them but actually the thing about bipolar disorder for me has been when I've been sort of really up like that and delusional it's not actually scary at all. You get a sort of a real rush. I don't know what the chemicals are, but it feels like a huge adrenaline rush. You know, like it feels fantastic. For me, it felt like I had magical powers, so it didn't actually feel scary. But what was scary was when it all finished and then realising that I'd gone mad. I know some people don't like the word mad, but at the time, realising that, you know, I'd been very mentally ill. That was when I found things very hard. Because when you're in the hyper part of bipolar, it's really exciting and fun. Your whole system is cascading with, I don't know what the, the neurotransmitters are, but sort of imagine dopamine, feel good hormones and chemicals that are telling you you're special, you're, you've got amazing powers. Yeah. And they take you to such a heightened state, but also make it often with some people, they gamble or make terrible decisions, have no impulse control. Mm -hmm. So you can destroy hard built lives when you're in a hyper state. But then, of course, you have a long way to fall that when you crash and you look back at yourself and you see your behavior, it sounds like one of the things you felt was shame as well and fear that, oh, my God, what does this mean? Yeah, definitely. Because at that time, you know, I was a 17-year-old girl. I was very self-conscious. I had very set ideas about, you know, who I wanted to be in life, what I wanted to do, you know, who I was. And then to have had that experience, I suppose I just didn't really know who I was. And I also didn't know if I'd be able to have the sort of life that I was hoping to have. Oh, event. Yeah, it just felt like everything had shattered, really. So you'd had this hope and confidence and picture of your future, and then 
with a diagnosis and what you call mad, it felt your whole future was shattered in front of you into a thousand pieces. That must have been devastating. I can see it on your face now, the shock of it, but also the devastation of it. Yeah, and also not just like the career stuff or, you know, wanting to go on and do the things I wanted to do, but also, as you said earlier, people weren't really talking about mental health stuff at that time. So I felt a lot of shame around it. I didn't tell my friends about it. My immediate family knew because they'd been there, but that was it really. I spent some time at a young person's mental health unit and then I eventually ended up going back to sixth form. But when I went back to sixth form, I never really talked to my best friends about it at all. I mean, I can just feel the the powerlessness, but the shame, like there's something wrong with me. I'm defective in some way. So going into a mental health unit, I don't know what you felt about the other people. I'd be interested to know what it was like with them. But then going back into the classroom in your sixth form, like not telling anyone because you thought, well, if I tell them, then they'll think I'm mad and they won't like me and mm. they'll alienate me because I'm a weirdo. Yeah. Well, you know what teenagers are like. You know, if you have any kind of difference, they'll pick up on it. I mean, it only has to be like you're wearing the wrong shoes and and, and everyone thinks you're a weirdo. So, you know, if you've lost touch with reality and gone to a young person's mental health unit, that's a bit different to the norm, isn't it? In terms of the mental health unit, there was definitely a real sense of fellowship there I mean they were all there for different reasons and I learned quite a lot about different things like OCD and well other people with depression there was a lad there also with um, ADHD and some associated issues that he was struggling with but I didn't personally talk a huge amount about what had happened for me it was just I felt like we were all in the same boat so there's a kind of belonging like you said a fellowship but it wasn't actually therapeutic Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a fellowship and I think I needed that space after what had happened to kind of breathe a bit and um, work out what I was doing, to be honest. And I think my brain just needed a bit of time to settle in a weird way. Yeah, to metabolise the sort of diagnosis. In terms of getting diagnosed, that wasn't until I was 24. So in the young person's mental health unit, it was into that well, they never used the word bipolar disorder, but they sort of hinted at sort of these extremes of moods that I have compared to other people. And they sort of suggested medication, but they didn't force it on me. And I chose not to at that time. Yeah, between 17 and 24, I had a few more manic episodes and depressive episodes. And then I eventually got to the point where I just thought, well, I got a proper diagnosis. And then at that point, I decided to go on mood stabilizers. But yeah, it's a bit of a journey. Yeah, it's pinging up so many questions and kind of also compassion for you at what sounds like such a a painful journey. I mean, if you're looking at your 17-year-old self now, what would you say to her? And what do you think you might have done differently that would have been more helpful for you? I think I'd probably say to her, You don't have to fix everything at once. Mm. Just deal with one day at a time. Just focus on getting through one day at a time. Yeah, you don't have to worry about your whole life. You know, just worry about today. That's that's what I'd say. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I feel just quite lucky to still be here. So after my 
manic episodes. I've also got quite depressed. And yeah, there was a suicide attempt, oh, which obviously didn't work. But now I'm a lot older, I just think, well, I'm glad I'm still here. But for young people, I think that's why it's it helps to sort of think about just to try and get through the next day. If you're feeling really low, just worry about what's in front of you. And also, I find it very helpful to think about the fact that, um, you know, feelings aren't permanent. Mm. So I know from experience now that depression comes and goes. So you might be feeling bad at the moment, but that doesn't mean you'll feel bad forever. And you really shouldn't use a permanent answer to a temporary problem, which is what suicide is, I think. Gosh, that is such a powerful, extraordinary understanding. You can't use a permanent answer to a temporary problem. Because I guess at the time the pain was so great and you thought if it is a thinking, it's more of overwhelm. I can't feel this pain forever. I have to do something to stop it. And the only thing I can do to stop it is to kill myself. Yeah. And I really remember still feeling like that would be the best thing for everybody if I wasn't there. Oh, this the idea that you felt that bad, that you thought it's better for everybody. But thankfully, feelings change. And, you know, life is about change. So I'm going to interrupt our conversation for a message from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel uneasy, whether it's a career change, loss of a loved one, or a new relationship. Our emotions can certainly leave us feeling overwhelmed. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions, but it can certainly be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you get to the root of your emotions and can help you build productive coping mechanisms. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's not only affordable, but can be done in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. And so tell me what has supported you through this hiatus of bipolar, the depression and the manic episodes. So mood stabilizers have been very helpful. Medication can really help. Yeah. Well, for me personally, I've found that they've really lessened the manic episodes. I've still experienced hypomania, which is sort of where you can be very, like you said earlier, kind of acting on impulse and maybe spending too much money and things. But I haven't lost touch with reality since I went on them at 24, which I think is quite good. And the thing I think also to add, having a diagnosis, because... You know, I have quite mixed views about diagnosis, that diagnosis can feel like a, a limiting, objectifying label that then limits your life. I have bipolar disorder. That means my life is limited to that. But it is also a gateway into 
medication support, understanding, understanding why you're behaving, how you're understanding. So it's nuanced, isn't it? It's not straightforward. Mm. Yeah, I think the diagnosis has definitely been useful for me because, as you said, if you know what something is, you can understand it better. So as a journalist, you know, I can research it. I can learn all I possibly can about it. You know, I can read studies about it. I can, you know, read all the things that I'm meant to do to be as healthy as possible. So I I might not always do all of them, but I know in theory what they are. So for me, that has been things like the mood stabilizers. I find meditation quite helpful. Exercise and diet. Do you have a regular practice? Yes. So in the morning, I find that very helpful. Mm because I can have a lot of sort of noise going on in my brain and it's sort of nice to kind of calm things down with that. So it settles you. Yeah. And the diet and exercise thing is the one I suppose that I'm struggling most with now because from the past, when I've got on board with that, I know that my mental health has been better, but um, there's definitely been an element of, I guess, abusing food to make myself feel better as well. So... Actually, you know, another thing that really helps me is um, singing. Ah. I've always found that very helpful. That might sound a bit odd, but um, I think there's something about the breathing and um, also the community aspect of singing in a choir, which I really love. So the companionship and also, like I said, the very basic physical thing of the breathing that you do if you do proper breathing for choral singing there's a lot of research to back that up in the co-regulation of being in a choir together and singing together that's it's the very opposite of you sitting on the loo crying on your own Mm. there's that sense of real connection and singing the same song with voice together amplifies that sense of I am part of something bigger than me Mm. and we know where we're going we're getting to the end of this song and we're making something beautiful is incredibly powerful and really good for our mental health. I mean, choirs should really be on the NHS. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As part of the prescription, along with bipolar, would be become a member of your local choir. Can we go sideways and dig into your eating disorder and knowing that exercise and eating, I guess, healthily or in a, in a regulated way helps you? I think binge eating isn't talked about enough. I think anorexia gets airtime but I think the the complexity and the shame so difficult to stop binge eating when you have to eat it's not like alcohol that you can stop or you know drugs that you can stop it's such a complicated habit Mm. do you want to tell us a bit your pattern and and the feelings that come with the binge eating and and then what do you understand that you're struggling with it so I suppose for me, like I, I realised that it was definitely a problem when I'd gone up to Tesco's, uh, gone round all the aisles, filled up with all my sort of standard binge foods. What are they? Just a picture. Yeah. So chocolate, crisps, cakes, anything with sugar, basically huge amounts of sugar. But the the, the key ones are chocolates and crisps. But I'm talking like a a whole trolley full. I'm not talking like a few things in a basket. I mean, that's the whole shop. Maybe a thing of strawberries to make it look healthy. (laughs) (laughs) Like the cherry on top. (laughs) Yeah, but I realised it was an issue where I'd I'd done this once and then I took my shopping to the checkout 
And the lady said very innocently, oh, you're having a party. I still bought it all and I still ended up binging on it. But um, after she'd said that, I just thought, no, I'm not having a party. What am I doing? <laughs> this is a real problem. Like, because why am I doing this? Yeah. Weekend after weekend. And also for a while, kind of it was day after day. I got into this pattern as well of, of working kind of really long hours. And then at the end of the day, going to McDonald's and then buying all this food and eating it on the train, but doing that day after day. Now, I know that that's not a healthy way to eat, but I feel like I wasn't eating. I mean, I obviously wasn't eating for health. I think I was eating to try and feed something else, like to try and feed my emotions or just feel better I mean the picture that comes to mind that you're feeding a hole of loneliness and eating your feelings of isolation yes I mean there's definitely the loneliness side of things the thing that I've realized though about it as well is that actually the way that I am when I get a kind of extreme emotion I'm prone to eating a lot anyway so it doesn't actually always have to be loneliness it could be anger so if something's happened with a work colleague and I've got really angry that can mean that eventually I'll end up overeating and the sort of stress eating is an obvious one but definitely anger eating which might sound very odd no I think it's very normal I'm not particularly good at expressing anger in a healthy way I don't think I'm not the kind of person who'd ever shout at people or say very negative things to people's faces Mm. I almost, you know, I almost actually admire female colleagues. I've had one or two. They do somehow seem to manage to get angry at people. And I see that as quite a skill in a weird way, because I've never managed to do that. I just don't know how to express anger very well. Yeah. So I can end up eating anger, but also I can end up eating too much for positive emotions too. So if something great has happened, that has also been like, oh, you know, everything's brilliant. So now I'll eat loads of stuff. So it's almost like any any emotion that is strong can then uh, lead to binging. But certainly, yeah, a classic one is being on my own and feeling like I want to treat myself, feeling like I've given everything that I possibly could and just being exhausted. And then the thing that is for me is food. So it's like there's this very ingrained pathway in you that any stimulus, you know, whether it's excitement, depression anger, rage, celebration, the pathway is, ooh, and then it goes straight to somehow food to give yourself a treat or to give yourself a comfort or to give yourself something to soothe you or to make make you feel better, that there's this direct pathway that food is somehow going to improve or sedate what you're feeling. Mm. And consciously you know that isn't true or cognitively rather you know that isn't true but the pathway of it the habit of it the way it's ingrained isn't it in your system that it's incredibly difficult to unhitch to take yourself away from it it overwhelms your thinking yes absolutely and it makes no sense because at the same time as all of this is going on I would also love to be healthy and slim and you know look a certain way but the stuff that I eat isn't compatible with that. It's a real catch-22 and sounds extremely painful. Yeah. 
But I think now I kind of, I'm starting to learn a bit about it. I suppose it's like with the bipolar disorder. Now I'm starting to get my head around it a bit more. Hopefully I can start to manage it a bit better. Because I think, yeah, once you know the sort of things you're prone to, you can maybe start to learn new ways. Like certainly I know that there's other ways to deal with stress, for example. So it's then doing those things rather than eating, which is easier said than done. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think personally with food, I always feel like I kind of fool myself into thinking, oh, well, it's just food because we think that in society, don't we? Like, oh, it's just a chocolate. Oh, it's just a few biscuits. Oh, it's just this. Even though for me, once it starts, it's more than a few. It's a lot more than a few. But um, there's definitely the risk of thinking, oh, well, it's just food. But actually in the long term, I mean, I went to the nurse recently and she said, you know, if you carry on eating like this, you could get a stroke. So it's not ideal. No, I mean, to put it mildly, that is not ideal. But I think that is the sort of seductive, distorted thinking, isn't it? It's just food. It's not heroin. It's not like I'm drinking 50 whiskies a day, but actually it is the same in that it could kill you. Yeah. Because it's not a bar of chocolate. It's whatever number of biscuits. It's it's the quantity, not just food. And I guess what I'm really understanding, though, is that as you slightly unhitch your behaviours to have awareness of what you can do for each one. That does begin to inch you a pathway to changing your behaviours. And I'm thinking about what you learned a long time ago is that small, tiny steps every day have transformational outcomes rather than having one big, magnificent solution that tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to stop overeating. You talked about anger stress, depression, those different types of moods? Have you found different regulatory habits for each emotion? Well, I'm still definitely in that process of finding out what works with those, I think. Mm. In terms of the eating, I'm now in this programme of recovery where there's a lot to deal with in terms of identifying emotions. And just that in itself is quite useful Because um, I think in the past, I just haven't let myself feel certain emotions, which might sound a bit odd, but (laughs) I would literally eat over them, I feel, I think. (laughs) Yeah, like I'm not having you, I'm going to have a cake. (laughs) Exactly. Because that's easier. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That's, That's definitely it. So the classic thing of being home on your own at, you know, at a weekend and feeling lonely or feeling sad and not even having that emotion, but like you say, just having the cake instead of that so when you stop doing that stop having those foods you do still get the emotions so it's I'm now in the stage where I'm kind of trying to identify what those emotions are and what I can do instead I had a big sigh as you said that like <laughs> I'm still in the <laughs> process of recognizing what those emotions are and what I can do instead like oh shit <laughs> Yeah, I know. It feels like sort of hard work sometimes, but I think it's important in the long run. I really feel like I sound airy-fairy saying this, but like getting back in touch with my actual emotions and sort of almost thinking like, all right, so I feel a bit lonely now. What could I do to feel better? You know, I could ring this friend or I could write a letter to somebody or I could go out, I could could take my dog out. 
oh, I feel angry. What can I do? <laughs> I mean, it's not in my nature to punch a wall or anything, but uh, singing is quite useful. Sometimes I feel like singing's like a genteel version of shouting because the muscles that you use to kind of express yeah. are quite helpful. I mean, I don't know about the anger. I still like, I don't know, honestly, how to healthily express anger as a woman because I feel like women aren't really allowed to get angry in the way that men are. I mean, there's so many things I want to go with here. So the first one is, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but that when you block your emotions, you block your capacity for everything because emotions are transmitters of information. So when you're feeling a painful emotion, it's telling your system you're alone. You need to do something about this. This isn't good for you. And emotions are meant to move through your whole system and out once you've paid attention to them and responded to them. And if those emotions are blocked, they just grow bigger inside you. They magnify. So then you get blasted with chillier sense of loneliness or a chillier sense of rage. And so when you, as you're beginning to do in your recovery, allow even a little bandwidth of those different emotions, you're freeing yourself to to adapt and change and that we are wired to adapt and change. But while you block them all with food and busyness probably working, they just grow like topsy inside you. On the other side of things, I've got a very good like four-point tool that works with anger. I mean, I'll tell you it briefly. It is to journal, like get it all down, not in good sentences, but just and maybe draw. And you can do that for five minutes. Then go outside and get your heart rate up. Exercise five, ten minutes. Walk around the block, like get it out. And you can punch as you're walking. People do that in the park. Come back and do a five-minute meditation. Breathing in for four, out for eight. Slow your whole system down. And then watch something funny for five minutes because you can't be angry and laugh at the same time and that combination is enough to get it out that you don't vent and amplify it so you express it you name it you lower the cortisol and rage by exercising you soothe yourself with the breathing and then you go into a different system in your brain through the humor oh thank you I love that I do good yeah nice and especially the humor at the end I think that's brilliant because I've always loved comedy. Good. So would you say that you're in recovery now? Yes, but I do also feel like I've got a very long way to go. And, you know, the combination of bipolar disorder and binge eating disorder, I mean, I feel like things are going all right at the moment, gradually, but there's always the voice in my head sort of going, well, you know, things are all right now. But what about in a few months time, when you get depressed again, what are you going to do then? You know, are you going to go to the doctor and have a serious talk about what you can do to kind of improve your mood that isn't eating? I mean, I should probably have that conversation with him now before I'm depressed. That's the sensible thing to do, really, isn't it? It is. It's to prepare. I mean, I think it feels like you know so much, like, you know, you can't project into an unknown future, but the things that you are likely to happen, you can have protective measures that really help you. So that if you set up protective systems for when you're depressed, that you develop now, when you're not depressed, 
of people you can talk to, things that you can do. Because the eating doesn't really stop you being depressed because sugar is a depressant because it gives you the hit in that moment. But then your body kind of sinks into a kind of comatose state. And then you also have the shame and the fury and the self-loathing that comes with it. So it's also part of it is properly really unpicking that and beginning to cognitively unpick that false belief that this is a treat and recognizing that this is a poison. That's really interesting. I never thought of it like that. And, you know, I've definitely felt the physical effects of sugar on me like that in terms of getting that high, but then falling asleep afterwards. Mm -hmm. Because I I think I have got a real reaction to it. And I think maybe an element of the eating that I was doing was getting the high, feeling like I was feeling better, and then kind of numbing out, I suppose. Also, in terms of the depression side of things, there's a lot to sort of think about around the food I know that I can make when I am depressed, because realistically, I'm not going to say I'm never going to be depressed again, because with bipolar disorder, I probably am going to be, but that I know that there are certain foods that I could do simply that wouldn't be junk, if that makes sense. Because at the moment, I feel fine. And I'm making sort of nice, nutritious, balanced meals. But when I struggle with depression, doing very complicated meals is harder. Doing lots of washing up seems impossible for some reason. I absolutely, absolutely hate sort of cleaning and stuff. Mm. Um, so I suppose thinking about ways that I can simplify things. I mean, a friend of mine who's also got depression, she's sort of just said, well, why don't you just get some fairly healthy-ish ready meals in the freezer just in case, you know, so a very straightforward thing like that. Mm. And initially I thought, oh, I don't know, ready meals, they're not that healthy, are they? But then they're healthier compared to binge eating. So Exactly. So it's relative. Mm. But also there's quite a lot of recipe books. There's a Jamie Oliver one, which is one pot, you know, where you put everything in in one pot, and you know, like a chicken casserole or whatever. But in some ways, lowering your bar of what's complicated, like just having ready meals in the freezer, which are a lot better than a trolley full of cakes and biscuits Mm. and crisps, making it the route as as low energy as possible that is a better option. Mm. It seems to be a good way to go. So we're, we're kind of coming to the end. I mean, I think you've told us a lot of what you've learned and that this is long and also possible that you have hope now in a way that you didn't and you recognize it's going to be tough what do you think you've learned that can support you in the toughness that you face ahead well I've learned that emotions are good apparently from this chat (laughs) I should actually feel my emotions good they're not just these these things to kind of get rid of did you not know that well I mean yeah on a on some level, I know we talk to children about, you know, you should, it's good to talk about your feelings and you should recognise them. On some level, I, I do know that, but I think the way that I've been treating myself has been different to that. Mm. So it's it's good to talk about that and think about how I can deal with emotions. Mm. Absolutely love your four-point anger. Great. The, the sort of the way of dealing with that. And your choir. Yes. For goodness sake, people. Yeah. That you don't have to text and say, do you want to meet for a drink? That, that it's on a Tuesday night or that it's in the diary, that you don't have to arrange something feels huge to me. Mm. Having plans 
is always very good, especially when you have depression. And, and also just knowing that there are ways to manage these things. And I think I have realised that from bipolar disorder, you know, it takes a little while, but you work out how to manage it. That's the way that's right for you. And my way won't be everyone's way. And I think realising that I can work out how to manage the binge eating disorder. I don't have to be ashamed of it. Because I think actually I have felt quite ashamed of it because our society is fairly fat phobic. That feels like a real pocket full of, of useful mechanisms that can support you that are also very different from what you've used in the past in the sense of really recognising that what you believed as a child probably would comfort you food is is doing the reverse and so finding mechanisms that support you to allow you to experience what you feel and let it come through you then actually you feel better and engage in life more and don't retreat and then don't have this excruciating shame which of course is so contaminating of all feelings of of positive feelings of joy or happiness or just simply feeling calm they just it's so toxic shame as a last moment, do you have a question for me? Well, you've already given me advice about the anger, but do you have any more advice about how to recover from binge eating disorder? I would really affirm and acknowledge what you do know and let yourself believe what you know. And add in a very big dose of self-compassion, like turning to yourself with kindness. And you have a great deal of compassion and kindness for other people. And even if you can only use some of that to gently be gentle with yourself when you have a bad day, so that you don't beat yourself up and have another bad day, but you go, okay, today was a bad day, didn't do what I wanted to do, I, I, I ate the trolley. But poor me, this was a moment of distress. This really hurts. I need support. I need love from myself. And so you kind of soothe yourself with compassion. And then that might change how you behave when you feel in pain the next day. Thank you. Is there something you want to say? You look like you're feeling a lot of feelings as I was speaking to you. Yeah, self-compassion is definitely something I know I've had to learn. I've still got a long way to go. I'm definitely better than I was, but ugh, depression's a pain in the neck. Ugh, depression is a pain in the neck, and compassion is one of its best antidotes, and also it is the one of the best antidotes for shame. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you so much. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I'm very interested to hear what you thought about my deep, important conversation I had with Yvette 
about her bipolar, her binge eating disorder, mental illness, depression. I'd love to know what your responses are on these incredibly complex ways of living, ways of being, maybe. It was a really profound conversation. And when I was listening to her talking about her, sort of, she was saying that her most prominent challenge at the moment is with eating behaviours and eating patterns. And it really made me think about my work. I worked for a while in an eating disorder clinic. And you know, for that reason, often clients came with challenges around binge eating, as well as, you know, as you talked about, sort of anorexia or the other end of the spectrum. And I guess it just made me think about some things that I had found quite helpful with clients that I thought might be worth offering. Do offer the listeners, if they have a binge eating disorder, what would be helpful? I think one of the things that's often quite helpful that people often realise in therapy over time is the way it's often framed in their head is that binge is like a failure and then they need to restrict as a reaction to binging. And actually, it's more helpful often to think about it is it's actually the restrict that causes the binge. And it, it can be actually what you eat but also it can be the way you're thinking about food. It's not literally necessarily even what you're eating. And then if you're telling yourself you can't have all the time, there's always then a breaking point that happens. Unless you're going down the road of anorexia and then eventually the consequence of that is to die, then at some point there's a point of breaking where you need to eat. So actually it's trying to break the pattern of restriction that supports someone to break the habit of binging. Because they hate the binge, that's the bit that they feel often most ashamed about. That's the bit they want to get rid of. And they often don't want to get rid of the restriction pattern because that feels very scary and out of control. If you are somebody who has binge eating disorder and it's also restricting, is what happens if I eat normally and then I binge? That is the fear, for sure. And then it's like, oh, it's cascading and it feels out of control and it's more and more and more. And I think one of the things to add to that as a practical thing that I was thinking is often that binging results in a big shame cycle, which then is what makes the restrict want to happen because it's such a horrible experience. And if it is possible to support yourself, to be kind to yourself the day after a binge, it can be a really powerful support to not getting back into the cycle over and over again. So being kind to yourself can look like giving yourself a hot bath. It can be trying to give yourself kind thoughts. It can be telling a supportive personal partner who's in your life that you've binged and get their love and support. Uh, and it can be doing soothing things, going for a walk, doing watching really comforting telly, do little kindnesses to yourself. The choir for her, I think the choir is a lovely thing. The choir. So you can have a mixture of bigger things than easier accessible things. It can be like a hot bath that are soothing. The other thing that I was going to say was sometimes I've had clients that find it really helpful to create a sort of sensory box, a soothing sensory box, because often the desire is because when there's feelings or sensations that feel very hard to be with in your body and and binging just like alcohol, sex or drugs is a way to obliterate and not feel. And, and they can be a mixture of really soothing sensory things and smells, the certain sense or certain textures that feel soothing but also sometimes spiky things like I had a client that found it really helpful and this can be a tip for self-harm as well holding ice in their hand so it's pain it's painful and it, but it gives some of the release without some of the consequences so she would hold ice as a way of managing the waves so that was just some of the sort of practical responses that I had in mind I think they're really really helpful I think the other sort of practical thing that can be helpful is that I think sometimes with binge eating that even if you've worked through a lot of 
of the emotional stuff, it can be a habit where you just do it automatically without even really thinking about it because it's what you've done for years and years, possibly since like early childhood. And something that can be helpful is to just put things in place to slow yourself down. So whether that's like that you put your food that you are more likely to binge on if you keep it in the house for whatever reason, ideally you don't have that kind of food in your house, but if it is, say you put it on top of a cupboard, that means that you have to get on a chair to get up and reach it. Things like that, that are very, very tiny, but can sometimes just a step in place to catch yourself, to say like, ooh, like, what am I doing? Slow yourself down, give yourself a chance to sort of say like, am I doing this because I am actually hungry and I need it? Or am I doing this because it's just what I always do? Or is it because that I'm feeling something that's not very comfortable and I want to like squash it? So ways that you can slow yourself can also be really helpful. Slow yourself and put mini barriers in. Hmm. Brushing your teeth. That's another one. I think the other thing is, though, I think sometimes for people, a trigger, people often binge at the end of the day. And a trigger is often that they just haven't eaten enough during the day. And they get really hungry. And the feeling of hunger can sometimes be the thing that can then trigger a binge. And sometimes making sure that you have quite consistent eating and good snacks in the early afternoon so that you're not super hungry by the end of the day can also help because sometimes it's the feeling is oh, I've started and now I can't stop whereas if you're in a more physically stated state it's less triggering the other thing I would add that I think often doesn't get talked about with disordered eating is often the pattern we have with food is the pattern we have in lots of other ways of relating in our life particularly around things that we're allowed or not allowed so the same patterns can show up in things that give us pleasure and whether or not we deserve them or not so in sex in enjoying things and that we can often have a binge restrict relationship if that's our relationship with food in lots of different patterns in our life and it often we think of it as food because it's the most prominent or the most problematic in our daily life but it's always worth sometimes noticing that actually you might find yourself relating that way to things not letting yourself have stuff a lot of the time and then feeling guilty when you do through other parts of your life. And the other part of that, I think, is the thing of binging is that I think often there's a sort of feeling of like, fuck it, I've already had one packet of biscuits. Like, <laughs> I might as well yeah. carry on, <laughs> you know? And and I think that's something that could also be applied in, in other areas. Like, I started, so I might as well just, you know. Yeah. Yeah, cigarette, same giving up anything, isn't it? Oh, sorry, I've had one cigarette. I might as well go back to smoking. And that's where groups like OA can be really helpful. The other thing, I, as you're talking, actually, that has just popped into my head is that often we use eating or sex or drugs or alcohol, all the things to block feelings, and we think of them as a treat. I can let myself have a treat. And then what you were saying has brought up for me, which is a new thought, is that when we engage letting ourselves have pleasure and it might be sensory pleasure like in your sensory box it might be allowing pleasure to come into you by how you're perceiving it you don't need a treat because there is a sense of oh I can have a cup of coffee now or you know and that that's a real pleasure for me yet you know and it isn't a treat because I deserve it because I'm blocking stuff it's because I am worthy and innately I can enjoy small things and big things so I'm not hungry to get my needs met exactly one of the things I was thinking that thing of if you work really hard all day and give yourself nothing pleasurable 
then it, at the end of the day, you feel like you need something. I mean, we've, I, I know I have, they like, oh, I definitely need extra telly tonight. That was <laughs> a hard day. But like, yes, I think it is, if you particularly have that kind of relationship to giving yourself pleasure and enjoyable things, it's really worth thinking about how you daily give yourself things that you enjoy and like. It's that, that walk around the block when you get your lunch and you let yourself sit on a bench under a tree and eat your lunch there rather than go back in the office and sit at your desk. Do you let yourself have your favourite podcast and line up? I don't know, whatever your version of that is. Which is obviously therapy work. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I wanted to say is I really wanted to validate her comment about how fattest we are. Mm. Because we live in an incredibly punitive world for people who do not fit the defined cultural approved body shape and there's so many stigma and judgments made of people who have larger size bodies that are not true you can be a very healthy and well person and there's a lot of false information out there you know I actually had a client who really educated me a lot about this stuff and I found it really helpful about how much health is not to do with your BMI and your weight it's movement exercise diet or if you have all those things as healthy and reasonably healthy as any of us do in life there's no reason that actually weight is a factor in your long-term health and there's lots of misinformation so my husband tangentially wrote a book about metabolism really a real bestseller um it was yeah, it was. <laughs> but what was fascinating about it was that he found out that essentially you can't really change your metabolism. Like your metabolism is incredibly genetic. And therefore, the way that you process food is also really genetic. And if you try and restrict or you binge, then your body will work very, very hard to basically get you back to what is your sort of core weight. So I just found that it all sort of felt a bit of a relief in a way. You sort of are who you are. And I totally agree. So if, the, if we were able to have a society that was more accepting, that everybody is different shapes and different sizes, then I think there would be less disordered eating because people wouldn't be so obsessed of having to change their body shape to try and fit what they thought everybody else thought it should be. Absolutely. We called it set weight in the clinic, that you kind of have a rough body shape that your body just wants to be. And it's going to work really hard to get back to it, whatever you do. And we'll put it on the show notes, but I think it can be very helpful to follow body positivity platforms that give you a language, that give you a different narrative about body and weight. So if you are struggling with this stuff, find voices that speak and embrace and celebrate how you are, because it's very loud, all the other stuff, it's very loud. I would really recommend, particularly if you are a mother and you've had children and your body has changed a really great parenting instagram page called big little feelings it's great advice for people of parents of young children but also uh it's very sort of body positive and sort of being grateful for your body like this is a body that has created these things and i love it what i want to end on links to her incredible wisdom when she says depression tells you lies that there isn't something wrong with you she talked very beautifully about how suicide was a permanent solution to feelings that are temporary yes which I've never heard anyone say before and such a sort of acute way of putting it very profound that I think the more that we can learn and teach the people around us that feelings don't last forever and I think that is 
really helpful to know if you are caring for a teenager or young child with anxiety, because I think there's this sort of anxiety epidemic where young people and, and adults feel anxiety and think that there must be something wrong with them, where actually anxiety is a completely healthy, normal emotion. Sometimes it can become unmanageable. And that's obviously when you kind of seek help. But even when it's unmanageable, anxiety, the way anxiety works is that it reaches a peak and it cannot keep going. Like it just has to come down. And I think the more that we can know that firstly, anxiety is a messenger. It's telling you something that is going on inside of you. It is not the underneath thing. There is something underneath. But also it it, it peaks and then it will drop the other end. That's a wonderful place to stop, Em. Thank you, Sophie and Emily, so, so much. You both actually have a lot of wisdom about this that I don't have, which is really lovely for me to learn from you both. So thank you, Yvette, so much for this incredibly deep and meaningful conversation, which I know a lot of people will take so much from. And for all of you listening, do please share these conversations with others where they can help or support your friends and family and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. See you next week.